Well, good morning. Um, I uh, went to my bookshelf the other day to pull out a commentary on uh, this passage. And uh, this is no lie, this is no exaggeration. And out of that commentary fell a bulletin from Clemson Presbyterian Church, October the 6th, 2002. Um, so I'm here this morning as a friend of this church uh, to direct your attention to the beauty of Christ. Then we leave here, I hope Jesus will be more beautiful than ever to you, uh, to um, direct us in that way, that we might not be uh, distracted by other things that are on our mind, but uh, to really reflect on, on the beauty of Christ. As we look at this text in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 6 through 15, I want you to think about two words uh, as I preach. Um, one is generosity. Um, and the other just has to do with gifts. But especially during COVID and during a time when people have lost their jobs or businesses have, have really suffered. You just hear one story after another of how people have shown generosity to their employees or just the other day I read about a guy that went in to get a drink at a restaurant and he left a $3,000 tip. And the point was just to try to help the people that are working there. So there's a lot of, lot of generosity generosity, but among Christians, it should even be more. This text will point us to that in a moment and, and would really raise the question, there, there should not be any Christian Scrooges. Now, you agree with that, but, but why? Why should a Christian Scrooge never exist? in our life, and in our community. Well, let's look at this text, and I'm not going to do a deep dive exegetically into this passage until I get to the very end. But hear God's Word, again, thinking about generosity and thinking about gifts. Reading at verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9. This is God's word. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, 
you may abound in every good work, as it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray together. Father, we do pause to give you thanks for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and for this time of worship, time to gather together as friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to again see from your word the beauty of our Savior. For those here this morning where that may be cloudy, or those who don't even see the Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open their eyes, their ears, their heart, to see you, to hear you, to understand you, that you would do this for your glory, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that um, your Holy Spirit would apply it to all of our hearts. And we do pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last few months, I read uh, a very interesting book because it it was written by a classmate of mine uh, in Logan High School in Logan, West Virginia. The book is "Don't Tell Them You're Cold" by Catherine Manley. She was a couple of years behind me in high school. And she grew up extremely poor. If you ever want to understand Appalachian culture, you would want to read this book or uh, John Vance's book on Hillbilly Elegy, which is now a Netflix film as well. But both books sort of describe poverty and describe how people lived and how people live in Appalachia. It's where I grew up. Um... I didn't know Catherine well. She was a year or two behind me. But as I read her book, I recognized everything she talked about, from where she lived to where she and her father begged, where they sold pencils on the street. And in her story, when it comes to thinking about Christmas and gifts, and generosity. This is how they did their Christmas shopping, especially for the children. 
when the creeks would rise, there would be floods. They would walk the creek banks and they would find the plastic toys. And those were for Christmas. As she got older, though, her greatest Christmas wish was for her own can of roach spray. Now, most of us don't even have a category for that. But from time to time, they would experience the generosity of others. Now, in this text, there are two things I want us to see. I want us to see gifts and generosity that can be described. That we can define it, describe it. We're very familiar with it. But then secondly, I want us to look at a gift that can't be described. So, gifts that can be described. Here in this text, the context, Corinth is a fairly wealthy region. And Paul is traveling through this area to raise money for the Christian churches and for Christians in Jerusalem. And as he's making his appeal, he's already done this in Macedonia. And they've been very generous. Christians in Corinth have been generous, which spurred on the Macedonians. Because there's a famine. This is the well-known famine that took place in the first century. Famine in Jerusalem. The Jewish church has struggled and here are these Gentile churches. Now, don't miss this point. The Gentiles are raising money for the Jewish congregations. But something has sort of happened with the church at Corinth. They've given, but they're kind of slow in bringing it to fruition. Paul's worried that he's going to be embarrassed when the Macedonians come in, who are much poorer, and bring all their gifts for Jerusalem, that Corinth is not going to be ready. So that's the, these first few verses here I'm going to talk about is his encouraging them to, to get on the ball. And he does it with just some very familiar passages or words that we hear often. Things like, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you will reap generously. Verse 6. It says nothing to do with the prosperity gospel. This has even more to do with just material things, but how you do spiritually. How you do in interaction with other people. And he says in verse 7 that... Hey, if you're going to give, you need to do this cheerfully. Jesus talked about that. It's better to give than to receive. And 
shouldn't be any stinginess with us as Christians with what he's doing here and trying to raise money for these people that are hungry. It's almost like famine relief for Jerusalem. So, should be doing this cheerfully, not begrudgingly. Verse 8, God will give you all the sufficiency that you need to do it. In verses 10 and 11, you'll be enriched as you do it. This will be good for you. It's better to give than to receive. In verse 12, it'll, it'll cause you to be thankful. You'll give thanksgiving for what you're doing. You'll, you'll glorify God in verse 13. And in verse 14, there is a bond or an affection that will develop between two types of people, Gentiles and Jews. You will love each other because you are giving and they're receiving and, and a bond develops as that happens. And perhaps you've experienced that personally with how you've helped people or shown generosity to people and you'll be doing that all through Christmas and it's just fun to be generous. It's just fun to give people gifts. It's just fun to see people appreciate those kind of things. And it, 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 it just it develops a bond. <laughs> I remember back when I was a child, and I can still remember back that far. But what we would do about Christmas... Um, we would get these catalogs. One was called Oscamp, of course, Sears. And uh, mom and dad would give us the catalog and say, you know, you flip through here and see what you might want for Christmas. And uh, I found this radio. It was a shortwave radio. Now, this would have been in the late 50s, early 60s. Shortwave radio. Um, and that just, appealed to me, and that's what I chose. Well, the radio came, and my mother had this, um, she had this, what she thought was a secret hiding place. But my brother and I always knew her hiding places. And she thought that there's no way that we would ever find anything but I found this radio. And so every time my mom and dad were out of the house, and I knew they were going to be gone for a while, I carefully pulled the tape back, opened the radio, got it out. Don't do this at home, kids. Um, played with it. Listened to it. Carefully put it back in the box. Put the tape back over it. Put it back in the hiding place. And that was probably something I did from maybe October on until Christmas. Christmas morning comes, open the box, and just didn't seem to be all that excited about my big Christmas present. Kind of got too familiar with it. Didn't show much appreciation. I was a kid. Don't, don't be too hard on your kids about their gratitude and appreciation. They'll grow up. They'll get to it eventually. 
They'll think about it. But my, I must have really shown it on my face. They're like, well, okay, this is what I expected. But there was, there was no surprise and not a whole lot of appreciation just because we become so familiar with it. Now, I, I would hate for that to be the case this morning with you about Jesus and about His church and about His call for us to be generous with all we have and that would not just be our money because that's very easily to describe and everything through these first few verses can be described. They were raising money. We know what money is. They were being generous because people were hungry and they were going to give the gift of food through the means of their giving. And that is all good and great and that's what the passage is about but then we begin to be shaken out of our complacency as we look at, secondly, a gift that can be, that can't be described. A gift that in verse 15, Paul says, Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. The Greek word here is a word that's only used in this place in the New Testament. If you're looking at the ESV, it's this inexpressible gift. If you're looking at an NIV, it's this indescribable gift. If you ever read Eugene Peterson's message, a paraphrase, he says, no language can praise it enough. If you're looking at the King James, it's the unspeakable gift. It's a gift that can't be described. God is a giver and he's not a taker. If you look at every major religion, it's all about someone performing for a God who will take and take and take and take and take. The idols in your life will take from you and take from you and take from you and take from you. God, the only true living God, is a giver and not a taker. And what is this gift? As you read through this passage, you get to the end. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. And you once realize it's not about all the money that's being raised in Macedonia and Corinth for the Christians in Jerusalem. This gift is Jesus. 
It's the whole reason why they can do what they do. It's the whole reason they can be as generous as they are. It's the whole reason that they are compelled to do this and have such feelings of love for the Christians in Jerusalem that are hungry and suffering through a famine. It's all of that is not because of their innate goodness. It's because of this indescribable gift. It's Jesus who is beyond material and human. Supernatural. We'll sing about the virgin birth. Virgin birth just blows our mind. That's not how it works. It's how Jesus came into this world. The incarnation. Taking on material. Taking on human flesh. The hypostatic union, a, a, a great theological term for where Jesus is absolutely man and absolutely God. You see the picture of that? Jesus in the boat when the storm comes up. He's asleep. He gets wakened. Wake up, wake up. Don't you care? Don't you care? We're going to die. And he gets up and goes, peace, be still. He was asleep. And then he gets up. And calms the wind and the sea. Hypostatic union. Fully God, fully man. This is why this gets really hard to describe. The Trinity. God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Jesus is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. So that's the gift. Now, what has this gift done? Well, he's met our most important need. You know what you think your needs are? We talk about felt needs, talk about real needs, unfelt needs. We talk about biological needs. Yeah, we all need to eat, we need to drink, we need to take care of ourselves. We talk about our psychological needs of social interaction relationships, talk about our spiritual need, and, and, and this is the need that he really meets. It's, it's our greatest need is our redemptive need. Your greatest need is to be saved. Your greatest need is to know Jesus and to know his redemptive work. So you can see how you would break forth in, in a doxology and a praise. Thanks be to God for this, this, this inexpressible gift who has met my redemptive need. I can't save myself. And it's that work of grace that Paul says here in this passage that enables us to do all the generous work that the church at Corinth and Macedonia were doing and what our church is called to do even to this day. We are generous people because God has been so generous to us. We can give because He gave. God so loved the world 
that he gave. He gave his only son. As you read commentaries on this passage, like one I read where the bulletin fell out, almost every commentator takes us back to Romans 8.32 for the context of this inexpressible gift. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what then does this gift produce? Produces forgiveness. That we are forgiven because of the merits and the work of Christ which enables us to forgive one another. One of the most amazing things in the, in the Christian life is to be able to do that and to do that generously. Not begrudgingly but to be generous in our forgiveness. It certainly produces justification. In Romans 5, therefore having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. That's the vertical. We have peace with God. We were once enemies, but now there is peace with God. We have adoption. We've been brought into His family, been called His children. As he adopts us, puts us in this process called sanctification. Where again, he's very generous with us. The Holy Spirit abides in us. We have union with Christ. And out of that union, being a part of that vine, having the Holy Spirit dealing with us generously, we are in the process of being made holy and growing in grace. So in justification, we have peace with God. In sanctification, we experience the peace of God, the horizontal. Philippians 4, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God... Romans 5, peace with God, vertical. Here, the peace of God, horizontal, sanctification, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, let me camp for a moment on that subject of peace. Because there probably has never been a time in all of our lives that we've experienced and people are experiencing so much anxiety and so much stress because of this pandemic. And if you'll talk to pastors and counselors this is like one of the first things people begin to talk about. People are just stressed out and 
anxious. And we long for that peace. We have that peace with God, but are we feeling it down here on the horizontal? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Now, for your anxiety, and we all have it, it's probably amazing that we're all not having panic attacks all the time. Anxiety means that we're troubled. There is a milder aspect of anxiety which says, okay, you're stressed out, you're preoccupied, you're a little fearful. But then there's a stronger aspect of anxiety that's almost paralyzing. It's the kind of anxiety that says, you know what, you're on your own. You're on your own in this dark and dangerous world. We hate to hear we're on our own. We don't want to be on our own. We weren't made to be alone. Made to be with people created in God's image. And yet, in isolation, we feel like we're on our, all on our alone in, 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 in this dark and dangerous place. Obviously, not all anxiety is sinful. There are lots of reasons to be anxious. Certainly about our health. Sometimes, though, anxiety begins a spiral of sinful thinking. Especially if anxiety is rooted in other sins like immorality or bitterness or anger, or greed, or addictions, or continuing, and hear the word continuing, not once in a while, but pattern continuing to doubt God's goodness and generosity. Like those disciples said in the boat when the storm came up, don't you care that we're going to drown? Don't you care? The Psalms, how often do we read? God, where are you? Don't you care? And to continue in that, that doubting of God's goodness and his, his generosity. And so when Paul in Philippians is talking about this whole thing of having and experiencing the peace of God. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything prayer and supplication. That's where we usually start to quote the scripture. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything in prayer and supplication. And, and somebody in deep, dark, dark trouble there would say, well, well wait a minute. I mean, I, I hear the imperative. I hear what you're saying to me. But well, how do I do that? And we miss the first part of that verse. The first part of the verse is, The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. Peace is the absence of conflict and anxiety. And the Lord is at hand. Because this indescribable gift, born of the virgin, born a king, 
came into this world and it was said of him, his name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. The Lord is at hand. God is with you. Do not be anxious. Takes a whole different twist, doesn't it? God is with you. God is with us. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. If you would come into our home and come into our dining room or our living room, you would see on the walls a series of paintings by early American artist um, Edward Hicks. And the paintings are all titled The Holy Mountain or The Peaceable Kingdom. They're taken from Isaiah 11. That beautiful passage that talks about the kingdom and talks about the new heavens and the new earth and tells us that one day, you know, the lion and the cow or the bear are going to be living together. A child is going to be playing at, at an opening in the ground where a cobra lives. And you're going to have all of this, all of this peace. All of this peace that's promised in the peaceable kingdom. And his paintings kind of show those pictures of the lion, the bear, the child. And, and then in every one, I'm down in the corner, is a picture of uh, like the pilgrims and Native Americans all just being together in fellowship. You have to look way down in the corner and, and see that. And he was just trying to picture a thing of a beautiful peace that comes through the generosity of the kingdom and the generosity and the goodness of God. Now, we can be at war with creation. There are nations in war. As a matter of fact, I'm in war right, I'm in war right now with squirrels. I, I hate squirrels. And squirrels have gotten into my attic. And squirrels actually got into my car and built a nest and cost me a lot of money in the wiring harness. And so, one day, I'm going to be at peace with squirrels. It's not now, but one day. And that's silly. But just think about the world. Think about the social, the political, all of areas where there just is not peace, conflict. We think about church. Think about Clemson Presbyterian Church. Think about the Presbyterian Church in America. There's always something going on. And the scripture is calling us to look at this generous God who has given us that inexpressible gift that even in our context in this time of the year... In this season, we reflect on more and more. And it should never become so familiar that we don't give thanks and show appreciation. 
Let me apply this very quickly. This text, this inexpressible gift, it's a new and bigger way of seeing things. To quote Paul Tripp, it's getting caught up in a story bigger than our own. And I would suggest that you contemplate God giving us His Son, that you get lost in that. If you're going to get distracted or lost in anything, get lost in the redemptive work of Jesus. Talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. Contemplate on the beauty of Christ. A new and bigger way of seeing things. Secondly, this gift gives us a doorway to faith in our most anxious moments. In our most anxious moments, unsettled moments, we look to Jesus. It's a doorway of faith where we open the Scripture, where we see Jesus, and where we know and hear that He is at hand. His name is Emmanuel, God with us, who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Let's not become too familiar with that. that, that that's so, so precious. It enables us to have a doorway to greater compassion. Just as you get into your own private world and have your own struggles and your own anxious moments, there are those who are suffering ten times greater. Move toward people. One of our inclinations, and we should never move against people. The gospel doesn't allow us to do that. But sometimes we tend to just move away from people. Not really against them, but just we move away. And let me encourage you to move toward people. The gospel, the beauty of Christ, this inexpressible gift, God moved toward us. God took the first step. He took every step. And corralled us to be His own. And has kept us. And says He'll never forsake us. It enables us to have greater compassion for folks that are struggling. Look what happened to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 8. In verse 9, he who was rich became poor. Look what happens when you let go of your wealth. Look what happens when you become generous. What a spot we would be in had Jesus not given up his wealth. He who, became, he who was rich became poor. So what? That through his poverty, we might become rich. How's God going to use you in somebody's life that way? And not just with money, not just with gifts, but your time and your presence. We apply this because when we are happy, we are infused with thanksgiving. 
When we're happy, we're just thanking the Lord. And we know that our state and our home and our stuff and our food, it all comes from His hands and we're happy and He infuses us with thanksgiving. But you're not always happy. So when you're sad and when you're agonizing, you're infused with hope. You have, because of the kingdom, and you know the kingdom right now, it's, it's here. Jesus is king. It's already, but it's not yet. And so even greater things are coming. So right now we have the power for the present, but as the kingdom comes, we have hope for the future. So when we are sad and are agonizing, we are infused with hope. It's the hope of the gospel. It's this inexpressible gift. This inexpressible gift. His name is Emmanuel. He is God with us while you live and God with us when we die. Let's pray. Father, what, what an expression in this last verse that just causes us to get lost in the incarnation and the fact that Jesus is God, that you have given us your Son, the greatest gift, so inexpressible, unspeakable, indescribable. We do praise you and we give you thanks. We pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know this Jesus, that you might take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and lovingly draw them to yourself. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.